This morning, what I would like to do uh, with the few moments that we have here together, and I know you all just focused in on few, right? Few moments, is I'd like to take a look at a question. Uh, just one question this morning, and uh, really is, I think, the most important question that you will uh, ever attempt to give an answer to. Uh, because the question, it, it expects an answer. More than that, it, it demands an answer. It is, without a doubt, I believe, the most profound question that is asked in all of Scripture. We find it in Matthew. We find it in Mark. We find uh, Jesus asking this question to his disciples. And as you read it, if you would crack it open, Mark 8, Matthew 16, you would find that it's not a question that was ever solely intended or exclusively intended for the disciples, but in fact, it has echoed throughout history and confronts every single person. As Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, who do you say that I am? And that is the question that I asked this morning is, who is Jesus? Who do you as an individual say that he is? Not because it's Easter and because we're here and it's a cultural American thing to do to still come to church on Easter. I'm glad that you're here. Super excited. But who do you say that he is in your life? Not who this church says he is. Not who the pastor says he is. Not even who your parents, your grandparents, your wife or your children says that he is. But, but who do you say that he is? It's very important that we give a, a response to that question. You know, C.S. Lewis, the great uh, author and philosopher, thinker, writer, and even Christian apologist, was, was once, at one time a very committed atheist. By the time he got to Oxford University and studying there, uh, his atheism had grown as his intellectualism and skepticism had grown. He'd become a very confident atheist, a bold uh, atheist. Some would even say that he was an angry atheist. And Lewis would write later on that his anger could be attributed to the fact that when he was a young boy, he watched his mother suffering from cancer. And he said that he prayed to the magician God in the sky that he would heal his mother and give her life, but he did not. And so at the age of 10, he watched his mother die of cancer before his very own eyes. And he said, it was at that moment that I dismissed the magician in the sky and the Bible became nothing more than a storybook to me. As time went on in the spring of 1929, Lewis said that he, he found a, a battle beginning to rage on the inside of him, a struggle that was very prevalent. And he fought it, and he did not want it, but yet he could not escape it. He found himself drifting from his atheistic point of view to a, a point of view that, that God really is who he says he is. And he said it was in the spring term of 1929 at Oxford University that he bowed his knee and prayed and gave in and admitted that God was God and became the most reluctant convert in all of England, is what Lewis said. He would later go on to write many books, and maybe some of you enjoyed Chronicles of Narnia and Screwtape Letters and other things like that, but his most prolific book is perhaps Mere Christianity, which was his attempt to reach the skeptic, his attempt to reach those who were just like him, who had questions who couldn't quite work through some of the things that didn't make sense. And it is in mere Christianity that he presents an apologetic, a, a defense of the Christian faith that has become known as Lord Lunatic Liar. And he writes this in mere Christianity as a, as a defense, as, a, as an apologetic, as, as a point of consideration for every person. It's really his way of asking the question, who do you say that he is? Who is Jesus. I want to read Lewis's words to you from mere Christianity, Lord, lunatic, or liar, and I want you to listen to them and consider what he says. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. 
That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Lewis says that we must make a decision, just like Jesus said we must make a decision of who is Jesus. He's either Lord, he's lunatic, or he's liar. I think this understanding frames for us the passage that I want to take a look at today, which is Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 23. What we'll find here is is that Mark presents to us uh, three groups of people who have a very different response to the person of Jesus. Their response, in fact, is Lord, lunatic, and liar. And as we read through this this morning, I want you to not only consider the words that are being read, but I want you to consider your position of where you stand. And so if you have a Bible with you, you can go with me to Mark chapter 3, whether it, you flip there, click there, turn there, however you get there, or you can just follow with me on the screens, whatever is most comfortable for you. Here's what Mark has to tell us. He said, afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him. And they came to him, and then he appointed the 12 of them and called them his apostles. They were to accompany him, and he would send them out to preach, giving them authority to cast out demons. These are the 12 he chose. Simon, who he named Peter. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus nicknamed them sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who would later betray him. One time Jesus entered a house, and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When, he heard, when his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. But the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets his power to cast out demons. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. He said, How can Satan cast out Satan? He asked. What I'd like to do this morning, if it's okay with you, and if it's not, you're not really going to tell me, so I think we should do it anyway, is I'd like to begin where we ended and end where we began in our reading. I'd like to take a look at the end of the passage first and work our way backwards. Look at this first group of people. We have these religious teachers of the law. They're they're the religious authorities of the day. They're like the pastors or the priests. In the scriptures, they're called Pharisees. And what they've just witnessed and encountered is Jesus. He has uh, delivered a man who was demon-possessed, a man whose uh, body was being ruled by a power greater than himself. They watched Jesus deliver this man. This man was completely free of that. They then go on and make an accusation towards Jesus. What they say is, what Jesus has just done, which they could not deny. They could not deny that Jesus had delivered this man. They said the power with which Jesus did that was not power from God, but it was power from Satan. That Jesus is demon-possessed, and he, he delivered this man on the basis of a power by Satan. Therefore, Jesus is demon-possessed, and Jesus is Satan himself. See, they could not deny Jesus. They, this is not their first encounter with Jesus. They, they've encountered Jesus on many occasions, and they've witnessed him doing miracles. They saw him heal a man who was paralyzed, and that paralyzed man who came in on a mat got up and walked and carried his mat away. They've seen Jesus heal people who were blind and they could now see, people who could not speak, but now they can speak. Those who cannot hear can now hear. They've witnessed all of that, and they cannot deny it. 
Nothing within them can deny what Jesus is doing. So the only thing they have left to do is to assassinate the character of Jesus, to proclaim that he is not who he says he is. See, Jesus is claiming to be God, the God of the universe. And the Pharisees, they, they, the religious people, they're having no part of that whatsoever. They, they hate Jesus. Why? You'll read back in chapter uh, 3, verse 6, just a few verses ahead, that they were already plotting to murder Jesus, to kill him. Why? Because he's claiming to be God. And they are angry with him. They are disillusioned with him. How can Jesus, this man, show up and just claim to be God? And so what they do is try to, to strip him of that claim of divinity, discredit him, and they effectively call him a liar. Jesus is saying, I heal and I teach and I set people free because I'm God and I have the power and the authority from God because I am God to do this. The religious teachers say, no, you are not God. In fact, you are Satan. You are the devil. And nothing that you're doing is from God at all. They call him a liar. Question is, well, why? Well, we already touched on that. They, they hate Jesus. They are angry with him. They are disillusioned with him. He is threatening their way of life. He is threatening what they believe and what they teach. He is calling into question everything they've ever known and what they do. He's a threat, and they want to kill him, and they want to discredit him. So therefore, that's what they do. They call him a liar. Maybe you're here this morning and you'd say this, I, I'm not ready to call God a liar. I don't think I've ever really done that. I mean, I'm in church. I don't think you can do that, right? Can call God a liar. So maybe you don't connect with that, but maybe you do connect with uh, being angry and disillusioned with God, with the concept of God, with, with Jesus. Maybe the anger and the disillusionment stems from something that God did not do that he said he would do. There was a request that you made to God, and he didn't do it. He didn't do what the pastor said he would do. He didn't do what the church said he would do. He didn't do what my parents and my grandparents said he would do. I read the Bible, and, and, and he did not do what my understanding of what he should do. He didn't do it. And you're disillusioned. He didn't meet that need. He didn't restore that relationship. And maybe you prayed. You prayed that God would heal somebody. And like Lewis, God did not heal that person. You lost a friend. You lost a family member. You lost a mother, a father, a brother, a sister. And maybe worse, you lost a child. And you prayed. And you asked God. And you believed. And he didn't do it. He lets you down. He allowed loss. And he allowed suffering into your life. And therefore, you were angry. And you were disillusioned that if God was who he says he was, he sure didn't show up in my life when I needed him the most. And maybe for you, God is, is distant, that God is, is cold, that God seems unsympathetic and ignorant to your pain and your suffering and your questions and your struggles. What I would say to you this morning is this, that in order to be angry and disillusioned at God or just at someone or something, you must first recognize its existence. Because if God does not exist, then who are you angry with and who are you disillusioned with? For if he ceases to exist, then you weren't let down. And it doesn't really matter, but if he does exist, you're acknowledging his existence. And maybe you've never articulated as God is a liar, but you can grab a hold that you're angry and you're disillusioned. And here's what I would say, that God is not unsympathetic or distant from your pain. Your, your pain and your suffering and your questions are not lost on him. He is close. He is near. 
Nor is God offended with your questions, offended with your anger, or offended with your disillusion. For if he was, we would have no hope. But he's close, and he's near. And I think if there's one thing I would like for you to understand is, is that you belong. You belong, not just at Faith Community, you belong in the church of Jesus Christ because you are exactly who he came for because at some level we have all been angry and all disillusioned with the person of God. You belong. Maybe you're here and you say, you know what, I, I don't, I'm not really angry with God. I'm not really disillusioned with God. I may have never uh, articulated him as a liar. I just don't really believe in him at all. Like, I don't really think, I can't get a hold of the fact that he is who he says he is. I don't believe his claims. I'm a skeptic, right? And I, you know, maybe I've never called him a lunatic, but, I mean, how many of you have like a crazy Uncle Bill in your family? You got a crazy family member, right? You never know what they're going to say. You never know what they're going to do. They're very lovable, but they're crazy. And they're the last person you introduce your, your fiance or friend to, right? You're like, is Uncle Bill going to be there? Oh man, I got to call him and tell him he's going to be there. Oh, you love him, right? But you just think they're crazy. Guess what? That's who Jesus was in his family. Jesus was like the crazy Uncle Bill. How can you say that? How can you call Jesus crazy? Well, it's not me. It's his own family. We read it. Did you hear it? When he was at the place and he was teaching and his family showed up and they figured out what was going on, they wanted to take him away. And what it says in the text is because he was out of his mind, what they thought. You know what that means? Crazy. Demented. That's what it means, literally. They thought Jesus was crazy. They wanted to take him to the loony bin, right? To the to crazy town, to the cuckoo house. They wanted to take him away. Jesus' own brothers did not believe that he was who he said he was until after the resurrection. His own brother James, who wrote the book of James in the New Testament, did not believe Jesus was the Son of God. He was there trying to take Jesus away, cart him off, put him in a straitjacket because he's crazy. Question is, is why does his own family think he's crazy? And not only his family, the religious people, they thought he was crazy too. Crowds of people that showed up, some of them walked away. Why? Because they thought he was crazy. Uh, I think an option is, or a potential um, reason is, is of his behavior. Jesus' behavior was, was, was different. I mean, he, he was not following in the footsteps of a, of a firstborn Jewish young man. I mean, his father was dead at this point, Joseph, and he should have been uh, taking care of the family business being a carpenter, but he, he walked away from that. Instead, he just decides to travel around and preach and be around all these groups of people, and he's saying crazy stuff, right? Like, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? I have food that you don't even know of. I have water that you have not tasted of. And he gives these analogies and you just scratch your head and you're like, what's going on? And, and he seems a bit odd. He's not acting like a normal individual. It could be his behavior, but again, like crazy Uncle Bill, right? I mean, he's crazy, but you still love him. So you, you don't excommunicate him from the family. You don't take him to the loony bin. You just, you know, give him food and hope he doesn't say anything, <laughs> right? Is anybody crazy Bill here right now? Right now. So, <laughs> I don't think it was so much Jesus' behavior as it was his claims. It was the claims that he was making. It was what he was teaching. It was what he was preaching. It, it's what made the religious Pharisees and teachers and people so angry. And there were three claims in particular. These three claims are the bedrock of the gospel. They are, in fact, why we are here this morning. The first claim is this. Jesus was claiming to be God. 
And we're like, oh, cool, he's claiming to be God. No, I want you to understand, God, like the God of the universe. Jesus shows up, right, lives uh, a life, and he becomes 30 years old, starts his ministry, and starts walking around claiming to be God. Now, people throughout history have claimed to have God-like status, like a demigod, you know, like, like Hercules, they're part man and part God. And you have gods like Zeus and, you know, those things. And Jesus wasn't claiming any of that. Jesus was claiming to be the God, the creator God, the pre-existent God. There is no beginning and there is no end to him. He's not I was, he's not I will be, he's I am and I always have been and I always will be. That's who he's claiming to be. That the God that created everything, that every individual and everything on this earth has its genesis in him. There is all creative power. This is who God is creating. He was, this is who Jesus is claiming to be, God. And this is a profound claim. Who else in history has made this claim? How many of you would be okay if somebody that you knew all of a sudden just started claiming to be God? What would you do? You'd do what they did. Try to take him away because he's crazy. You write him off as crazy or that individual off as crazy. This is what Jesus was claiming. I am God. Second claim is this. He says, I will get on a cross and die to forgive the sins of all of mankind. Now, we, we accept that, right? I mean, it's Easter, it's Christianity, yeah, there's a cross. But I want you to think about forgiveness for a moment. I want you to think about the authority and the right someone has to forgive. If I had two people up on stage and I had Bob and Tom, right? And I'm watching them having, a, having an altercation and a, an encounter. I'm just standing back. And all of a sudden, I see Bob rear back and sucker punch Tom right in the face. And I decide it's time to get involved, right? So I step up and I, I look at Bob and I can't believe what he did. And I look at Tom and I say, Tom, here's what I want you to know. I forgive Bob for punching you. <laughs> Tom's probably going to punch me, Right? <laughs> Tom's going to look at me and says, on what basis, what authority, what right do you have to forgive Bob? Because Bob didn't punch you. Bob punched me. That's what Jesus is doing. Because he's claiming to be God, he's saying that, yeah, you may have sinned against someone else. You may have punched them, whatever that looks like, but it's actually all against me. I'm God. And I have the right and the authority to forgive sin because all sin has been committed against me. Jesus could look at Bob and say, I have the authority to forgive you, Bob. Hold on a minute, Tom, because there's evil in your heart, because there's hate in your heart. And you, although you punched Tom, you really did it against me and I forgive you. Even without Bob asking for it, even without Bob deserving it. That's what Jesus is claiming. I will get on a cross and die and forgive the sins of all humanity, past, present, and future. Not because I have to, not because someone earned it, not because someone qualified for it, and not because someone would ever do anything to earn it. I'm doing it, why? Because I am God and I am fundamentally good and I created humanity and I want to restore relationship with them and I forgive them because of grace. I want you to think about that for a moment. What other religion in the world says that their supreme, whoever God is, their supreme being, came down to the earth and sacrificed himself for all of humanity? It doesn't exist. Every other world religion asks this question. What must I do to be good enough for God? 
Christianity comes on the scene and says, no, and that's not what you must do. It's what God has already done for you is this concept of grace. That's what Jesus is claiming. So that's the first two claims. He's God and he's going to forgive sins. Here's the third one. He says, not only that is I'm going to die on that cross, but three days later, I will bodily resurrect and I will live again. Now he could have said this. He could have said, I will spiritually resurrect, but you can't prove that. You can't validate or verify a spiritual resurrection. How do you do that? Someone says, My, their spirit has been resurrected. How do you know? I felt it. I don't care. Let's go look at the grave. They're there. We dug it up. They're still in the tomb. Okay? Jesus said, no, no, no. I will bodily resurrect. I will no longer be in the tomb. Now, a bodily resurrection is verifiable. It's validatable. I don't know if that's a word. (laughs) See, Jesus understood that if he did not bodily resurrect, then all of his claims are done. Because how does God die if he's supreme, all-powerful? You can't kill God. So if he can die, he's not God. Done. Now, if he, if he dies and he said he's going to forgive sins, but he never resurrects, then uh, that goes away too. Because then it's all just a bunch of malarkey, hogwash. It's done. Then effectively, he's a liar. He's a lunatic because he just said a bunch of stuff that made us feel good and he left us hanging out to dry and there really is no ever possibility of connecting with God and, and being restored and forgiven that it's all done. No, Jesus said, I will resurrect within three days bodily resurrect fundamental to the claim. It's the reason why we're here this morning, right? We are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus that he paid for all sin on the cross and then rose again. That is the receipt to what he did. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you say, I, I maybe not ready to call him a lunatic, but I am a skeptic and I am very skeptical of those three claims. I don't know if he's God. I don't know if he died on the cross and I really don't think he resurrected, but I'll give you this. He's a historical figure. He historically lived. I'll give that to you. And I'll also give it to you that he's a great moral teacher. I think Jesus was good. I really don't have any any problems with him. He said a bunch of great stuff and he wrote some good stuff. So he's good. And that's fine. And if you're a skeptic, let me just just give you two things to consider. Number one, anytime we want to validate something historically, whether it's in a court of law or it's just in, in history, we look for two things primarily. That's evidence and eyewitnesses. Right? If someone brings a case against you and there's no evidence and there's no eyewitness, well, then you're going to get off. But if there's evidence and there's eyewitnesses, then there's some trouble. Historically, you want to go back and look and see, did something really happen? Was the Battle of the Bulge really fought? Was, was Gettysburg really fought? You need evidence and you need eyewitnesses. I would challenge you to go through the records and look. I would challenge you to, to not only look at the Gospels, but look at, at uh, Paul's writings as well. Paul says in Corinthians that over 500 people saw Jesus, saw him resurrect. Paul was converted about two years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Paul went and studied with James and Peter. Both were eyewitnesses. James was Jesus's brother. Peter was Jesus's uh, top disciple. They walked and talked with Jesus, saw him die on the cross, saw him be buried, and then saw him after the resurrection. Eyewitness accounts. There are evidence. Go back and read it. Don't take my word for it. Go read it. Look at other sources. It's historically there. Look at those evidence. Look at the eyewitnesses. Consider that. Do do your research. Now, here's the other thing I would want to challenge you with. I want you to consider. If you say that Jesus was historical, great. He's a historical figure. Now, if you say that he is a, a good moral teacher, he's a good man. 
What you have to realize is like what Lewis says, it's not intellectually honest to leave it there. Because a good moral teacher would never knowingly fabricate information and, and le- mislead people and make claims to which he knew was not the case. That doesn't fit my definition of a good moral person. I don't know what your definition is, but he cannot be good and moral and knowingly mislead you. I get up here uh, almost every week and, and I share things with you and I, and I share out of scripture and I share my life and I tell you how I live. Now, if you were to come and find out that my life was the exact opposite of what I say I do and then you would classify me as a hypocrite and I don't think you would give me the, um, the benefit of being a good moral person. All of my morality would be called into question because of the life that I lived. So it is not intellectually honest to say he's a good moral teacher. You can be intellectually honest and say he's historical. Yeah, that's fine. But you at least have to come to terms with he's a lunatic and he's crazy. Because someone who makes the claims he did, like Lewis said, makes the claims as a man, and it's not true, and it never was going to be true, he can't be good and he can't be moral. So that's where you find yourself today as a skeptic. I would say, great, study it out. I would also say this. You belong. Your your skepticism, it's not offensive to God. Your questions, they're not too big for him. If God really is as big as we believe that he is, or you would say as you say he is, well, then he can handle the questions. He can handle the skepticism. And I would say, bring it all in. I'm not asking you to turn your brain off. I'm asking you to pursue the question of who is Jesus in the midst of the concerns, in the midst of the doubts, and in the midst of the data and the evidence and the struggle that you may have. And maybe you're here and you say, yeah, I am a bit of a lunatic. I think he's a bit of a lunatic, but I, I am a skeptic. But like Lewis, I find myself drifting. I find that struggle within me. I'm drifting away from how hard and fast I was here. And I'm, and I'm struggling because I'm, I'm drifting towards a belief in God and who he says he is. And I would say, great, you, you could become the most uh, reluctant convert in all of House Springs. You can start out as a reluctant convert and become a committed follower. You can be a reluctant convert. That's okay. You can become a committed follower. And that brings us to this last group of people. Like I told you, I wanted to you know, begin where we ended and end where we began as where we read in our text. And that is these 12 men who Jesus calls and, and they follow him and they declare that Jesus is Lord. You see, Jesus called these guys and there's a, from a diverse background. You had uh, fishermen, you had tax collectors, you had people who were like political zealots and trying to overthrow the Roman government and, and uh, accountants. And Jesus brings all these guys together and he calls them. What does he call them to? He asks them not only to be part of his team, but he's going to teach them and he's going to give them the responsibility of carrying the message of the gospel and building the church as we know it today, all the world, that's what he's calling them to do. And these guys do it. They, they follow Jesus. My question is why? Why did they follow Jesus? Because they walked away from their jobs. They walked away from their families. They walked away from a known quantity from their support system, all to follow Jesus. And Jesus didn't give them like a guarantee, like here's a 401k, right? You know, and I'm going to pay you out of whatever you're doing. And this is going to be easy and it's going to be wonderful. No, no, no. He said, come follow me. And this is going to be difficult. And I can't guarantee you anything, but they did it. They, they left and they followed him. I think there's two things to consider of why they followed him. Number one is they believed him. They believed that Jesus was the son of God. And they followed him. 
You say, well, did they just blindly believe? Did they just throw caution to the wind and, and not use the brain that God had given them and just never question anything? No, not at all. Because if you're fair, you'll look through scripture and see that the Bible treats them like human beings. And you see that they had questions. I mean, Peter, one moment, you are the son of God. The next moment, there's no way you can die on the cross. I will not let that happen. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. All the disciples, they, they, they just can't understand why Jesus has to die, and they struggle with it. And then when the Roman uh, centurions come, the Roman army, and they take Jesus away, what do his disciples do? Foom, flee. They're gone. See you, Jesus. Out. Peter denies having ever known Jesus. Thomas doesn't believe that Jesus really was resurrected. He's not going to believe until he can put his fingers in where the nails were put in his hand. He becomes known as Doubting Thomas. Now, these guys struggled. They did not check their concerns at the door. They did not check their brains at the door. They struggled, but yet they believed. I think it's important to understand the concept of belief in the Greek language. That's what the New Testament was written in. It was written in Greek. It's different than our English concept. Like if I, if I give you some facts, the sky is blue, grass is green, and uh, gas is too expensive, right? You will, you will say, I'll say, do you believe me? Yes, I believe you. What have you done? You've given mental assent to some facts. I believe. In Greek, the concept's different. When they say believe, when the Bible says Confess, uh, believe in your hearts and confess with your mouth, that word believe, what it means is to, to surrender oneself to to give oneself, to, to commit oneself, to give oneself to. In fact, the best comparison or analogy that we have in English is this, I do. That when you stand on that day, your wedding day, and you're looking into the eyes of your potential spouse, and the vows are read, and they say whatever they say, and you respond with, I do. In that moment, what you have said is, I, you haven't said, well, I believe that you're a woman or a man, and I believe that uh, you want to marry me, and I believe. No, 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 what you're saying is I commit myself to you. I give myself to you. I surrender myself to you. And you'll know that in that moment, you didn't check your brains at the door, and if you've been married longer than five minutes, you know that there's struggle. You know that there's questions. You know that there's doubts. You know there comes a time at times when you say, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Is this worth it? Do I still want to be married to you? Yes, we've got kids and all this, but I, I think I may be done. No, you, you know that it's all with that. And I, I give myself to you for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health till death do us part. I do. That's what these guys did. They, they believed Jesus. They said, I do to you. And they struggled and they had concerns and they had doubts, but yet they believed. The other part is this, is that inherent to the message of the gospel is you belong. That it doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what your present is. It doesn't matter what your current thoughts are regarding God, what your race, your ethnicity, your language, your socioeconomic status, anything, none of that matters when it comes to the gospel, it is for you. God is near. God is close, reaching out to you. What he did in Jesus, he made no prerequisite that you had to look like this, think like this, act like this, talk like this, be like this, not have done this. Oh, you should have. No, 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 no. I'm close. I'm near for you. That's the question. Who is Jesus? He's either Lord, he's lunatic, 
He's a liar. I told you I wanted to begin where we end and end where we began. And I'd like to leave you with the words of C.S. Lewis. It's the end of his apologetic in this portion of mere Christianity. Here's what he says. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he is, he was, and he is God. Would you pray with me this morning? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writing this letter to the Corinthians, he says this. He says, I've given you the gospel. He is God. He died on a cross to forgive your sins. And he resurrected three days later. I've given you this gospel. Now, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to believe? There's two parts to the gospel. God's part, and then our part with God's help. And God did his part in Jesus. Our part is believing, is giving ourselves to, is saying I do to the person of Jesus. I wanted to conclude this this morning by asking if there is anybody in here who wanted to respond to the person of Jesus, to believe, to bring your doubts, to bring your struggles, to bring anger, to bring the disillusionment, whatever the case may be, the skepticism, to bring it and say, in the midst of all of this, I say I do because I need forgiveness. I need Jesus in my life. I'd love nothing more than to pray with you. If that's you, would you just raise your hand this morning? I'd love to pray with you. you say, why would I raise my hand? Thank you. I raise my hand. It is just an outward expression of an inward transformation. Thank you. I'm going to pray, and I want all of you to repeat this prayer after me. The Bible says if we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths, then we are saved. Let's repeat after me. Say, Heavenly Father, I thank you for your son Jesus. And it's in this moment that I declare I believe I give myself to you. I bring my doubts. I bring my, my concerns. And I bring my anger and disillusionment. And I accept you. And I receive forgiveness for the sins that I've committed. Past, present, and future. And I declare that you are my Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every person here that has prayed that prayer. Whether they raised their hand or not, but they prayed in their heart, Lord Jesus, and declared that you are Lord. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that that this is Easter and it's not some holiday that we check off the list. But Father, it is the most important day of the Christian faith because we can stand with all assuredness and say that Jesus Christ is God. He did die on a cross and he did resurrect three days later and we worship a God who is alive, not a lunatic, not a liar, but a God who is alive and with us and near. And we thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, as we walk out of here this morning, we will be different than when we came in, that we will have a greater sense of who you are in our lives. I pray that you bless every person in here, God, meet every single one of their needs according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.